0: Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode three, recorded on May 28th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be with you again. And we have good news for XFCE users coming up later on in the show. But we should probably start with
1: the worldwide global news from Nextcloud. Yeah, big news from Nextcloud this week. Global scale, which is their way of Scaling Nextcloud instances up to 300 million users was the uh, the quoted number. That's their kind of goal for this, which is a lofty ambition to say the least.
0: Yeah, it's it's obvious that Nextcloud is going head forth not only into enterprise, but at these, at these numbers, also, I would imagine, uh, state installations. Now, they're doing this through a series of different technologies, basically things to break out different jobs and uh, make NextCloud responsive across a network of systems. So using proxies and central database servers that are aware of which users are logged into which NextCloud servers and all kinds of things that increase scalability. And the, the interesting thing, Joe, is that, well, for you and I, this seems like a good thing for NextCloud to do, Probably doesn't really matter to most of us that are just running NextCloud, say, on a, on a VPS or on our local network. But there is actually kind of a cool angle. This technology would also enable portability in, like, a NextCloud ecosystem. Ooh. And what I mean by that is you could have a series of service providers that are already starting to crop up. That could be at the ISP level or it could be just something that you subscribe to online. That's like hosted NextCloud. It does all of the things that Nextcloud do, but they manage the Nextcloud instance. But say you get annoyed with that provider, it could be possible to move your account and your data to a different Nextcloud instance. So Nextcloud becomes a a, sort of a a neutral platform that different service providers spin up, and then you can move around as a consumer using some of these same technologies they're building to make Nextcloud also massively scalable.
1: Yeah, what they're trying to do is leverage themselves into a position of being the standard, or at least a standard, which you can then move around, and doesn't really matter where you're using it, because it is just the standard way to do it. I was having a good chat with Yas on episode 198
0: of Linux Unplugged. He's, you know, works over at Nextcloud, and you start to realize after talking with him pretty quickly that they're a a non-trivial amount of work away from creating a Slack and Mastodon killer. And I don't I don't toss that around lightly. But if you look at their federated technology and you extrapolate from there, and you make it possible to tag users across federated servers, and you add global directory servers that are aware of what servers are, are online and which users are logged into which of those, and you start giving people addressable addresses like at Chris LAS across this federated server infrastructure, then you combine in their online collaborative editing they're already built-in existing file-syncing and sharing services, their calendar and collaborative work, their note system and the apps that you can install, and the user data portability. What you got yourself here is a potential Mastodon-Slack
1: hybrid that is open source and user portable. It sounds amazing, doesn't it? It sounds like it could be a killer of Mastodon, as you say, and uh, Slack. But can I pour a bit of cold water on this, as usual? Mm-hmm should they not be thinking more about improving the core functionality first before they roll out all of these crazy new global-scale federated systems? Do you know what I mean by that? that? I mean, Take, for example, when you send me the audio for this to, to do the edit of the show, you're going to send me it using Dropbox. And the question I have for you is why? Why not Nextcloud? So I think I would argue a
0: bit with the premise. I think they are improving the core with each release. They're definitely making solid security improvements, and the upgrades seem to be getting better and better between releases. I would also, I would bet you that some of this is about replacing core infrastructure that needed to be reworked anyways. And so since they have to replace it, why not make it scale to infinity to infinity and beyond? Um, and I think the reason why I don't use, say, their sync solution over Dropbox is twofold. Number one, I think the Dropbox CDNs are faster than anything I can implement, so you can pull it down, and the other hosts I work with can pull down the files that I post up there super fast, basically can saturate your connection wherever you're at in the world. And that's particularly nice for the type of workload that I'm doing. The second thing is is that I really have no interest in managing an instance at this point, because I just want to share files that end up public anyways. I just want something that's exceedingly good at just moving those files and the i guess i i said there was two things but there's really three things uh, the software i use to record some of these shows natively integrates with dropbox using their api and saves to dropbox that's its only save destination as a matter of fact which is incredible. <laughs> and welcome Incredibly to... Incredibly risky. Yeah, and welcome to... The, me. I mean, I would bail, right? It's not an irreplaceable piece of software, so that's why I use it. If it was something that was fundamentally irreplaceable, I would not use that. But because I'm going to publish it to you via Dropbox anyways, for now, it works. If that were to go away, and I were to re-engineer a solution, NextCloud would be a serious consideration for me. I might also look at other things that are just pure file syncing, like C-File. So it just kind of depends on the job.
1: Yeah, yeah, and for me what they need to improve massively is the the document editing the collaborative editing because google have just got that down so perfectly as far as i can see we're using it right now for the notes for this show google docs in drive is so well just perfect it just works it does everything i ever need it to do auto saves all the rest of it whereas with nextcloud Okay, it's getting there, but it's not quite there yet, is it?
0: I think I still prefer Google Docs myself for doing show notes, there especially when you're live and you're on air. But I I don't know it for an office where you have not exactly real-time collaboration, but you have Joe looks at it for 15 minutes and then Chris looks at it for another 15 minutes a half hour later and then we publish it on the internet. For that kind of that kind of collaborative editing, or or even like, you know, we're all at a meeting, say Joe, Chris, and the beard are all sitting around the Jupiter broadcasting meeting table and we're all taking notes. I think it's fine for that kind of collaboration. For we need to message, we need to be able to make corrections in real time while we're speaking on air. I think Google Docs has a leg up there. And the other place where Google Docs has a huge leg up is with Google Apps package that they're so successfully selling to businesses, at least here in the States, and particularly to schools. Because you buy that one package, and in case of the schools, you can even get in there for free, and you don't have to worry about hosting, you don't have to worry about infrastructure. You just get part of the Google apps uh, as part of your your subscription. And that's why Nextcloud has to work more and more on their scaling and on being available to service providers. So service providers can go into things like businesses and schools and sell a Nextcloud solution. Because otherwise, the businesses are going to opt for the more sustainable, quote-unquote, cheaper investment, which is right now, Google Docs or Google Apps. That's really their competition, I feel like.
1: Yeah, well, let's hope they can create this standard and... We'll get these um, hosted solutions, and it'll be really easy for people to use, and then they'll be using open source rather than evil Google. So from the future of file syncing to the past of init systems, DevOne has finally reached 1.0.0. Right, and it's worth noting this
0: is their LTS release based on Jesse, which is a bit ironic, but we'll get to that. Uh, This was something we talked about with RC2 just announced only three weeks ago, but they feel like there was no critical bugs that came up, and so for init freedom lovers out there, it's ready for a 1.0. What do you think, Joe?
1: Well, I installed it, and I also installed Debian Jesse, and both of them had XFCE on them, and I got them to be very, very similar And so from a user's point of view, once you've got it installed, it's Essentially, the same yeah, yeah. operating system.
0: Yeah, I did the same thing. It's just funny. I decided to do the same thing, and there is one major difference, and that's why I said there's good news for XFCE users because uh, Devuan doesn't give you the option to install GNOME three. <laughs> Let's just put it that <laughs> way. So you get XFCE, you get LXDE, uh, and you get Mate.
1: <laughs> well, I did it from the live CD, which was XFCE. So that was um, <laughs> when I heard that the live CD was XFCE. I thought, great. Well, because that's what I use. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean it does kind of seem like a good desktop. I was I was chewing this over though, and you know where I would totally use dev one, you know, not even as like a as like a statement on systemd, but if I just had a production system in place, a server, that I had reason to believe would have issues if it was upgraded to systemd and I needed a direction to go, it'd be if I could overlay the uh, Dev One packages or if I could if I could upgrade an existing Debian release to the Dev One Jesse. 1.0 LTS, if I could do some sort of cross-upgrade like that so I don't break my system and I can keep my existing installation patched, I could definitely, definitely see a use for this. Sort of like in the past, I used to convert Red Hat Enterprise servers to CentOS systems. And you would be, you know, you, you got it down. Eventually, you just could replace the right packages, and then all of a sudden, you could upgrade to the next CentOS release from the previous Red Hat Enterprise release. Don't ever do what Chris does. Uh, if you could do something similar with Dev1 and Debian... That might be nice for those that are actually worried about real-world real, real world breakage. My personal opinion, though, is it's much more likely that there are way more GNOME 3 users out there that if they tried to upgrade to this would break their GNOME 3 desktops.
1: Yeah, because um, GNOME's got a lot of dependencies on systemd, hasn't it? So it's, yeah. that's why, presumably, it's not in dev1. And logind specifically,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, it's all the irony in all of this is though, is th- as they hit Jesse one we get an actual release date
1: for Debian Stretch. Yeah, which is going to be a few weeks time. So they are almost a whole release behind now. I mean, you know, like does that matter? Probably for the kind of person who is going to use Dev one, probably not. But if you want to be stuck on an old three point uh, something kernel and stuff, hmm, don't know really. So DevOne is an interesting project that I feel like
0: is under a particularly higher amount of scrutiny than other recent distros that have come up. And one of the things that did jump out at me, and I can't tell if this is just me being critical or if this is experience speaking, but in there, they talk about the reason it's good to release is because no critical bugs have been reported since the RC three weeks ago.
1: But if you have a tiny user base... Mm. Yeah, that's not good potentially, is it? But you know what's funny about having Debian and Jesse and Dev one Jesse on the same system which one do you think boots faster I guess I would have assumed the system d1 but I don't I don't know yeah but nope Dev one booted much more quickly because um I think it was um it, it was struggling to read one of my other partitions or something um, <laughs> during boot and so it just sort of froze a little bit I'm supposed to do something automatically with this but I can't figure out what <laughs> yeah. And I hadn't done any um, FS tab stuff or anything like that. It was just all automatic. So it's supposedly system D boots more quickly, but not in this case on my test machine. So there you go. Well, Joe's
0: porn stash aside, I have have reason to believe system D systems are supposed to boot faster.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe. So let's talk about good news for Wimpy's favorite subject, VR.
0: Yes. Steam VR is now supposedly working under Linux, and now this is an update that was pushed out to Steam, and it's experimental at this point, and it also includes an update to SteamOS. More details in a second, and this is called Steam VR Home Support. It's a beta feature from Valve, which makes like some of the social stuff and the interactive launcher work, and if you combine it with the right base distribution, and I'll get to that more in a moment, you can actually get full Valve VR features. Under Steam OS or or Linux, uh, and I'm all, boys, my body ready for this joke because I preemptively bought the Vive hardware the the moment they announced that they would be doing this, the, which is Vive is who Va- Valve works with, and uh, I got it I got it all pretty much ready to go. Tried to set it up under multiple different distributions and hit different roadblocks depending on the distribution I tried. So having this get this part down the road means that the setup experience should be a lot smoother, especially if you use the new Steam OS update.
1: But hang on, how's that going to work in the RV? You're going to be running into things left, right, and center trying to do VR. <laughs> boom, pop, boom. It's worth <laughs> it, Joe. No, I have it set up here in
0: the studio living room. It's for the studio. It's not for me. It's It'll be like set up here for people to play around with when they visit JB1. Uh, and so this is like you know this is like going to be like a big thing. I was going to get Wimpy, <laughs> I was going to get Wimpy in the VR headset here at the JP1 <laughs> Studio while he was out here for Linux Fest Northwest. But three different people took three different cracks at getting it working under Linux with very minimal results, and we were not satisfied with what we got, so we didn't bother because we thought if we gave Wimpy a bad showing, it would be worse than nothing at all. So we just yeah. put it back in the box and didn't bring it up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: This isn't particularly exciting news right now because it doesn't work that well. It sounds like it's very experimental. It's it's all kind of beta. But for me, why this is very important is it shows that Valve has not abandoned SteamOS. And it, again, you mentioned this um, update to the beta, uh, Brewmaster beta. It's had a huge update um, to the latest version of Debian Jesse and new kernel and all that kind of stuff. And it shows that Valve have not forgotten about SteamOS. And I I wonder why that is. Is it because of Windows 10 S maybe? Mm. Because that was the the possibility that they created SteamOS as a hedge against, wasn't it? Because of the fact that if you get a Windows version that you can only install stuff from the store, then Valve loses their control with Steam to deliver the software to you.
0: When I heard that Windows S story and the fact that Windows S would be limited to a certain subset of apps from the Windows Store, in fact, now we've learned it's even more limited than we initially thought. Like the yeah. Windows Linux subsystem stuff will not be available from the App Store, even though it's in the Windows Store. Um, when I first heard that story, my first thought was, this is exactly what Valve was worried about. And so I would not say you're totally wrong. Having spoken with the, uh, the gentleman at Dell who is responsible for Dell's Alienware Steam Machine, which... I think is officially the most successful Steam machine, if not unofficially the most successful Steam machine. And we asked them specifically, well, when are you guys going to update this thing again? Because it's been a couple of years. And Dell said, well, we're waiting for VR. We feel like when when Valve nails VR in SteamOS... We're going to rev the hardware. And I bet you Dell's not the only hardware manufacturer thinking that. And so Valve does have a couple of hardware partners that are sufficiently happy with the sales to produce another unit. But they need a reason to put a GTX 1080 in there or something like that. My conversation with the guys at Dell were like, yeah, we put a, we put a GTX 1080 in this thing. Um, but to tell you the truth, the majority of our customers are playing at 1080p. And a, a 960, an NVIDIA 960 does just fine when you're pushing 1080p. And then for our customers that are going to 4K, most of them know how to open up this machine and put a different video card in too. Like it's just not huge yet. But if we could get 4K and Steam VR and all these different requirements, we'd be happy to rev another piece of hardware. So Valve might be readying the groundwork with these SteamOS updates, their quote-unquote biggest update ever for a new
1: generation of Steam machines. Well, let's hope so, because I would really like to see SteamOS do well and be a a serious competitor to Windows, or at least maybe the Xbox and the PlayStation. It seems a bit ambitious, but I'd like to see Linux out there yeah. doing well in gaming and being taken seriously.
0: And you know, Joe, I, I actually had a conversation with a couple of different people who are like, I, I love PC games. If I could get a, if I could play it easier in my living room, I would totally I would totally do it. So maybe maybe they're going to maybe that's what they're going to offer. So it's good to see the SteamOS update because it also includes some of the uh, Vulkan drivers needed to make VR work, which is actually the trickiest part of getting VR to work under Linux right now, is you have to get a particular version of the Nvidia driver that has a particular build of Vulkan. It's the same version that a lot of distributions ship by default, but it's a different branch of the driver. And so it causes a lot of package conflicts. And so SteamOS is smoothing that out. And this is an example of where SteamOS allows Valve to sort of iron out some of those little bumps.
1: Yeah, and if they get it to the point where it is just an appliance that you can plug in and start using, because it's based on Linux, we're all going to benefit from that. This episode of Linux Action
0: News is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Go to DigitalOcean.com, create an account, and use our promo code, here's the thing, and you get a $10 credit. You apply that to your account, create the $5 rig, run it two months for free, or run one of their hourly systems. When I was trying out that new NextCloud release, I spun it up on a DigitalOcean droplet, ran it for a little while, kicked the tires. I really
1: enjoyed it. Joe, if memory serves, you got a couple of droplets yourself. Yeah, I've been using DigitalOcean for uh, quite a while now, and it's brilliant. Maniac. One thing I used it for was when I needed to get late-night Linux onto Google Play podcasts. You you Mm. can only do that from the States. So I thought, well, I could fire up a VPN or I could do something a bit more interesting. And so I fired up a droplet in New York, just the $5 one, installed X2Go, logged into it from my laptop, installed LXDE, browsed to the website, set everything up, and then destroyed the droplet. And guess how much it cost me?
0: Hmm. Six cents, seven cents, eight cents, what?
1: One (laughs) cent. (laughs)
0: You were quick, too, then. That's nice. Yeah, the hourly pricing is killer for that. I love it for trying out different open source projects. We have, uh, right now, Joe and I are chatting over Mumble, and we have a Jupyter Broadcasting Mumble server that we use on Linux Unplugged, and we run that on a DigitalOcean droplet. One of the things I love about it is the performance is extremely respectable for wherever you're connecting in the world but if you know where your users are going to be at you can position using one of their worldwide data centers they have them all over the world in New York San Francisco Singapore Amsterdam London Toronto Germany India they have them spinning up all the time you might just want to go create a droplet next to Alan Jude I know I do digitalocean.com go over there create an account also play around with their block storage is super sweet you can go up to 16 terabytes you can attach it to your device as block storage mess around with whatever file system you want or crazy LVM Set up digitalocean.com. It's a great place to learn and put things into production and experiment. Just use our promo code here's the thing at digitalocean.com. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Linux Action News.
1: Well, we talked about Steam on Linux, and a great way to use that is on Solus. And this week, Solus have announced preliminary KDE Plasma support, something that IKEA was very reluctant to do before he said that they needed to have a maintainer for it and it looks like they have found a maintainer peter o'connor and so it doesn't quite work yet it's not officially supported but it is coming very soon by the looks of things that you'll be able to have a proper plasma desktop on top of solus which is just going to increase their potential user base massively because. Maybe you don't like GTK, maybe you're a KDE user, have been for a long time. Well, now, once this gets worked out and the bugs are squashed and it's all working, you'll be able to use Solus.
0: I like the way Ike wrote this post because he kind of gives the background on how this happened and it makes a lot of sense. Essentially, there were big ticket items that were using the KDE frameworks, like KD and K3B, that they essentially needed somebody's help with anyways. And so Peter comes on, he seems to be pretty ambitious about this whole thing, and he acknowledges it's early days with this. But... If the community works with him, I think you might end up finding the Plasma desktop being one of the premier desktops of Solus. And uh, if they're going to continue to bring in more cute stuff too, why not have somebody that's on top of that? Now, they, he also broke out the whole team there of maintainers. Makes a lot of sense. As somebody who's running Plasma for a while... I was using it on Arch and Neon, and Solus would be a great addition to that. I mean, it seems like a, a great mix. And recently, Solus was one of the distributions that switched over to that NVIDIA driver that has the Vulkan support to make Steam VR work. So you could really get yourself a pretty nice setup going if you're a Plasma desktop user that wants some of the latest Steam stuff. And it could be just a great distribution for
1: that class of user. And, you know, I can't help but feel that Plasma is going to get more users very soon because of Ubuntu. It sounds a bit strange. You think, well, hang on, surely... Ubuntu getting rid of Unity and going to GNOME is going to mean you're going to have more GNOME users. But the reality is that it's just not that good, GNOME. I mean, is that a controversial thing to say? It seems to be a bit crashy. You were talking about the uh, OBS box crashing quite a lot, at least once a week. Once
0: a day, yeah. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I've realized it's
0: much more often. In fact, I I've, I've now have multiple issues with it. Yeah, you're right. I was talking about that on User Air 10. And it is, if you want to know more, I did a little deep diving into what I consider some of the core performance issues
1: with GNOME. Uh, yeah, and that, that's what got me thinking about it. The thing is that KDE Plasma has just got better and better and better over the last year or so. And every time I try it, it seems to just be better and more stable and run perfectly. And so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's, yeah. it has me thinking that it's, if you want a modern desktop, I love XFCE. I quite like Mate, but KDE, if you want something really modern, they, they really are pushing the boundaries. And Qt to me seems like a better long-term commitment as if you're a developer because GTK is just a, this constantly shifting goalposts.
0: I think GTK is getting there. I think they're about to announce, you know, 4.0. They're working on a, a, a latest release. I think they're really getting there now with GTK. It's starting to, starting to calm down, so that criticism will be less of a concern as as they land on that. I think the, the main attraction to GNOME is for people that are switching from macOS or Windows – where it's so noisy. There's so much stuff they're throwing at you. They're even now putting ads in your launcher. It's it's so much input to your brain. You just want to get your terminal and your text editor and your browser and have a clean environment, and GNOME is that. As much as I love Plasma, the reason why I actually switched back to the GNOME shell was three and three and a half months and change into my Plasma 5 desktop re-experiment again, When I was really busy and really trying to rush, I found myself getting flustered on how to use the UI and where certain things were in Dolphin or accidentally closing the wrong pane and still not picking up on some of the UI cues. And so I decided for my own work efficiency, it was faster if I just switched back to GNOME and ignored some of the surface level, obvious to see performance issues in trade-off for a more efficient workflow for me overall. I love Plasma. I think Kwin's great. I think the transition to Wayland, it's going to be even a stronger contender. But right now... UI-wise, GNOME
1: feels like it gets out of my way more. Well, I can't stand GNOME, I'm afraid. Whereas KDE, I've never been a fan, a massive fan at least, but it's growing on me, what can I say? And yeah. uh, this Solus thing gets me pretty excited, I think that...
0: Are you considering trying it, Joe? Are you considering giving it a go?
1: I am considering it, yeah. which Whoa. Because the thing is, XFCE is, is well, as Aiki described it, is basically dead technology they're just about porting the panel to gtk3 when gtk4 is about to be released (laughs) you know so i have to think long term and mate is great and that's my go-to apart from xfce but if you're going to move away from xfce why not look at all the options and grome i just do not like and anything lighter like lxde or lx don't really like so I'm thinking KDE might be worth a try. I mean, we'll see. We'll see whether I actually... I'm fascinated by this. I would love yeah. to I would love to see if you tried it. I would love to hear how it
0: goes. I, I thought it was pretty powerful, very stable for me, really reliable, good performance. KWIN is butter smooth. I have nothing but positive things to say other than I found the UI options still overwhelming at the end of the day. And I just felt like I didn't want to feel like a dumbass when I was using my machine.
1: Well what I really like about it is the configurability. I can make it act exactly like XFCE essentially, only be based on modern yeah. technology.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is, you can definitely you can definitely make it basically work like any desktop environment you want. That is one of the nice things about it. It sometimes leads to endless tinkering, but if you if you can set limits for yourself, it's a really nice setup.
1: Yeah, well that's yeah, exactly. I wouldn't do that. I would just set it up as I have it set up now, which is basically like Windows XP. <laughs> and um and, and just then just leave it. forget about it.
0: Yeah. yeah. And what would you run as the base OS, as the underlying distro?
1: Well, I've always been a fan of Ubuntu LTS as a base. It just seems to be the, the best compromise because you've got PPAs for anything that you need new versions of. But I'm generally happy with old versions of LibreOffice and that kind of thing. I, I don't need to be, I'm not one of these Arch users that has to have the latest of everything like you.
0: Mm, okay. i I, I would uh, I wonder if things like flat packs and snap packages, if they are successful, if they will change that. Because when you say PPAs, I cringe a little bit, to be honest with you. I'm like, oh, really? yeah, I, I just, I'm not a big fan of PPAs anymore. I feel like it, it, was, it was a model that worked for limited distribution for testing software out of Launchpad and became a way to distribute software on the Ubuntu desktop. And it's just, it's so clunky. Like when you sub- subscribe to like projects that are maintained by contributors and that contributor stops adding, updating the PPA and you start getting 404s when you try to update your cache repo, it's, it's super obnoxious.
1: Well, yeah, you've got to not go mad and be adding PPAs left, right, yeah. and centre. But yeah. the odd yeah. thing, like Get Iplayer for example, is something that I need a PPA for generally because I've just upgraded to sixteen o four on my main kind of media box, and it's working for now. But when that breaks, I'll have to add a PPA basically to make it continue to work. But that's what one little command line um, program. You know, we're not talking about huge things like a desktop or whatever. I agree.
0: If you limit it to a couple of functional PPAs, one or two applications, you're generally fine. And if it's something that's pretty popular, if one PPA dies, you can often find a replacement. And Maybe, for example, you want to subscribe and get the latest developments from Firefox.
1: Hmm. Yeah, Firefox. Now, this week, there was a blog post on Medium by Eric Petit, or Petit, who is the head of marketing for Firefox. Now, the first sentence in this blog post is, I head up Firefox marketing, but I use Chrome every day. Yeah, wow. If I had a bell, I'd be dinging it, Chris. That what the, what? You're you're the head of marketing and you use Chrome every day and you're admitting that first up. Uh, Okay, well, let's just try and move past that. And what this blog post is about is browse against the machine, which is a bit of a, I don't know what the word for it is, really.
0: Yeah, it's their new campaign. It's their new campaign to try to make users aware of the differences between Firefox and Chrome, and that Chrome is connected to a larger machine. So you can browse against the machine by electing to use Firefox. And what Eric does here is he tries to build a case for it. He says Chrome has four times the market share of its nearest competitor, which is Firefox. He compares it to an eight-lane highway to the largest advertising company in the world. Google built it to maximize revenue from your searches and delivered display ads on millions of websites to monetize every single click. And today, there exists no meaningful safety valve on its market dominance. So he's trying to build this as like a war. This is this is the battle for the web. And so they, he's building Firefox up as this way to manage this, right? Today, Firefox is better than it was even a year ago. It's faster, it lags less, it hogs much less memory than Chrome. And in June, we'll release a multi-process Firefox, putting us at performance parity with Chrome in most of the ways mere humans can actually perceive. It's because of this newfound internal confidence with Firefox that Mozilla has started to become more aggressive again. And they are announcing the Browsing Against the Machine campaign with a renewed posture for Firefox and a return
1: to their roots. So they've got these five points, right? The first one, Firefox is leaner, it takes up less memory, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so that's a technical argument. And then the other four are four different ways of saying we're not Chrome. Yes. (laughs) That's their biggest argument for why you should use Firefox. We're not Chrome. Their
0: last part is we're Mozilla, not Google. Basically, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then they're actually boy, it's weak. Firefox is not built by and for the largest advertising company in the world. So there's that. That's literally what they put in the sentence, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Eric did, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. There's there is a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, bark here. There's definitely a lot of bark. I don't know where the bites at exactly. Um, it's, it, it does land a little soft because he admits he uses Chrome every day. And he goes on to say that, you know, it's fine. I use it because I am logged into different stuff. And I have some stuff in Chrome and I have some stuff in Firefox. But I, I, feel, like he, I feel like Eric here, so just like, just like Mozilla was fighting the, the mobile battle with Firefox OS too late, Firefox is too late in responding to Chrome. It's the same story over again, unfortunately. But they're so caught up on this solid moral reason we need an open competitor for the web. They're so caught up on the technical achievements they've made with the improvements to Firefox that they're losing the fact that they themselves are Chrome users.
1: Yeah. And Andreas Gal, who was the former CTO of Mozilla, wrote a response to this well, not really a response, but a f- kind of a follow-up article looking at the numbers of market share, and it does not look good for Firefox at all. The, the, you basically got two graphs, one going up and one going down, and Chrome is the one going up, and it, and it doesn't really matter which way you look at it. People are not using Firefox anymore. There are a small number of us still out there, and I still use it. I'm I'm using it right now to look at this blog post but I am in the minority. Yeah, he says at the macro level, it's safe to say that Chrome is eating the
0: entire browser market. Everyone else except for Safari is getting obliterated. Safari is treading water as Apple sells iOS devices. If the six-year trend holds, IE should be pretty much dead in two or three years. And Firefox is not faring much better, unfortunately. It's headed towards a 2 to 3% market share if the trends hold. Now, this, like, like Joe said, he, not only was he the CTO, but he was pretty much the head guy behind the Firefox OS project. So he he really helped bring it to scale, and he's coming at this now with perspective of a of a failed project, and he says, "Look at our Firefox usage on Android, where mobile is now a huge part of the the web usage. Firefox and Firefox Focus on Android have close to zero percent market share."
1: Yeah. Now I have Firefox on Android. Me too. But- yeah. I just use it for sites that I want to be logged into different um, accounts of, basically. Yeah,
0: yep. you're not using it for your daily
1: driving. No, I've tried, and it's just terrible.
0: And what does that do for Mozilla's agenda? That doesn't help them set the web agenda. That doesn't help them drive Firefox adoption, really. if you you know, They need daily users.
1: Yeah, which I still am on the desktop. Um, I had to install Chrome the other day to use Hangouts, and I think that's a big factor here. To use any of Google's products... You basically need Chrome. For example, Maps basically doesn't work in Firefox anymore. It just crashes constantly. And you can't use Hangouts at all because the plugin isn't supported anymore. Docs and Drive seems to work reasonably well in Firefox. But if you're going to engage with Google's services, you basically need their browser. And I don't know if that is them deliberately making it not work in Firefox there's two ways you can look at it. Either the the conspiracy that they've made it deliberately shit in Firefox or the reality they don't care about Firefox and they don't bother testing it. As long as it works in Chrome, they're happy. I speculate it's
0: because it's using standards that Google has proposed but the industry hasn't quite adopted yet. And eventually Firefox is sort of reluctantly drugged into adopting the standards so that way they're compatible with the Google product. I don't even think, though, it's so much that Google has great services that work better under Chrome. I think that's probably definitely part of it for adoption in businesses and things like that. But uh, like Andrea says here in the post, Firefox was really Mozilla's effort to drive the web by building a browser. And they were actually making pretty good headway on that until mobile exploded and the browser came baked into the OS at a whole new level. And it they completely lost their leverage and now the web like you look at our own download stats for this show android far and away blows away the desktop downloads yeah and, and and then and in fact in fact ios if i recall
1: is still well above the actual desktop download statistics for this show which is a bit of a surprise isn't it you'd think that there'd be a lot of people listening on Linux desktops, but apparently not.
0: They're listening on the go, Joe. They're listening on the go, and so they download on their mobile device, which is when they're checking the web on their mobile device, it's the same thing, and I think there's just a lot more of that happening now. Our stats have shown that transition, and Firefox has has no hold there. It's really the dominant player is either going to be Safari or... Chrome or whatever, the built-in browser. And he, he makes a good point that that strategy was working for Mozilla until that little fact came along.
1: That's why they were so compelled to try Firefox OS. It was just too late. Yeah. But even in Enterprise, Gartner came out and said that Chrome is one of the biggest browsers in Enterprise now. Most companies still use IE for some things, but they also have Chrome. And Firefox It's just not going to be an option, is it? Think about it. If you were setting up someone else, I am setting up a a laptop to give away to someone who doesn't really use much more than a browser. And so I'm sticking Zubuntu on there for him. And Chrome, because I know if I give someone Chrome, every website's going to work. YouTube's going to work. Everything's going to work perfectly. Whereas I could put Firefox on there and then have to support them.
0: Yeah, I know for myself, my my transition to Chrome definitely was firm when it was the easiest way to get Netflix. And that's when I also transitioned fully from Chromium as well is a couple of other sites I go to don't work well under Chromium, work fine under Chrome, Uh, like Spotify Web Player, for example. And so over the last year and a half, where I used to really be a, really a dual-browser Firefox Chrome guy, and now I'm Chrome, and I'm Chrome Private Session, and I have stuff logged in, or Personas even, and I really barely use Firefox anymore. And I, it makes me sad, because I think it's a solid browser, and I'd love to see Mozilla around for the long haul, and I'd love to even see them be influential, but for the services I use on a literally daily basis, Chrome seems to be better. And I would argue, Joe, that it doesn't really matter. It is it, This battle is maybe over. But the war for other for other aspects of the internet and the web in general does rage on. And it seems possible for Firefox to continue on as a desktop browser doing just fine, and for Mozilla as a company, to find new areas where somebody needs to blaze standards and blaze innovation where they've been where they've done successfully well in the past. They just essentially need to be ready for the next round of technology whenever that comes so they can be a player.
1: Well, let's hope so. So shall we
0: end with a bit of positive news then? Yeah, I'm really excited to see some progress for Coreboot, specifically coming out of Purism. They have Librem 13 version 2 and 15 version 3 working with Coreboot now.
1: Yeah, it's great to see that they've got a couple of machines now that they're going to ship in June, which are actually going to come with Coreboot all being well, which was their original promise, wasn't it? Free software top to bottom. And a genuine competitive differentiator. Yeah, I was very skeptical though at first. I was very skeptical of Todd. He talks a good game and I just thought it was absolutely impossible. But fair play to him. He's worked very hard on this and for a very long time and they've managed to disable the management engine and stuff and they seem to really be putting the money where their mouth is. These machines are pretty expensive for what they are but it seems that that money has been invested back into making them actually run core boot and that's got to be better than some proprietary EFI. The other thing that's cool to see is
0: this sort of pushes the competition up a level in the market. So maybe other manufacturers might be more compelled to try to get this working on their systems. It gets more people using Core Boot, which is good, and it does give people who are seriously dedicated to this kind of this kind of system an option besides a four year old ThinkPad.
1: Yeah, or a Chromebook, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who wouldn't want that? I don't think the type of customer that wants a Librem is going to compromise with a Chromebook. Plus, who wants to pesky with all that uh, weird Chromebook issues when
1: you're trying to run Linux? Yeah, which I have, unless you run... I can't remember what the disk drive... That's how long it's been since I've even used that machine. Um, There's Crouton, which you can use inside Chrome OS, which seems like not a bad way to go. Yeah, I didn't even bother with that. I just went straight for Gallium OS, which is... um, an XFCE-based distro, it's basically Ubuntu, but working on the Chromebook. Yeah, Gallium,
0: I remember that now. I completely forgot about Gallium. Crouton's nice if you don't want to mess with the whole thing. You predominantly use Chrome OS and just need to go to Ubuntu, but Gallium would be a great way to go if your daily driver is going to be Linux.
1: Yeah, and the battery on my Chromebook is so good that um, I used to use it for media consumption quite a lot. But um, yeah, I, a, I need to dig that out and start using it again, I think consume some of that media weekly by
0: going to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get this show every single week. And you can contact us at linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch.
1: Smooth, Chris. Real smooth.
0: (laughs) Thank you, sir. Thank you. you got to tune in every single Monday to get that smoothness for our weekly take on the latest in Linux and open source news. I'm Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.
1: See you later.